0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the
1: Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery, with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring 20th century mysticism in America. My guest is Ronnie Pontiac, who worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He has produced award-winning documentaries and has written articles for several esoteric magazines. He is author of American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. Ronnie lives in Los Angeles and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ronnie. It's a pleasure to be with
0: you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I really feel honored.
1: We've already done two interviews on American Metaphysics. We focused on the 1700s, on the 1800s. This time we're going to focus on the 1900s, on the 20th century, a century uh, in, in which I have certainly lived the majority of my life and I suspect you have as well. Mm-hmm. And I think a good place to start would be with your mentor and uh, colleague, Manly P. Hall.
0: Yes, he certainly is to me representative of, of occultism in the 20th century, but he goes beyond that because he, while he had a deep interest in the occult, was fascinated with all religions, all traditions, uh, the most established and the least well known were all equally valuable to him. And in them, he found wisdom and often found great similarities, which perhaps is no surprise since all of these are uh, based on human nature and we're all human beings. So he he spanned the century. He was born in 1901, he dies in the 90s. He saw so much incredible change. For example, he was born originally in Canada and he was raised by his grandmother. She was somebody that was deeply into theosophy and she had a good bookshelf of esoteric books. And so while kids his age at the time were trading baseball cards, and they did have baseball cards back then, he was reading ISIS Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine and absorbing all this arcane knowledge. He got a job working as a clerk on Wall Street, and the story goes that he saw someone commit suicide due to a terrible financial loss. And he just felt that the whole environment there, although there was the promise of great wealth, was something that held no interest for him. And he didn't want to be around it. His mother who had left him to be raised by his grandmother was a chiropractor who'd gone off to Alaska to work on the gold miners up there. But she had recently returned to Los Angeles where she settled down. And he decided to have a reunion with her. And he came all the way out to LA arriving in 1919 when he was 18 years old. And at that time, Los Angeles had wooden sidewalks and a great deal of interest in metaphysics. There were oil derricks on the beaches with people sunning under them, but there were also these small houses, really kind of beach shacks in which lived mediums and card readers and every kind of prognosticator and fortune teller. And there was beautiful Flowers that went all the way up to the to the sand back in those days because it was so undeveloped. He was pulled into the sphere of the Rosicrucian Fellowship because his mother was very interested in in that particular teaching. This was after Max Heindel, the founder of it, had passed. Mrs. Heindel was running it. And Mrs. Heindel recognized in Manley Hall this brilliant youth who absorbed all the information they could give him as fast as they could give it. So they taught him astrology. They taught him about publishing. They showed him how a small organization like that runs. And they even taught him about bookbinding. He came to Los Angeles then ready to lecture. And one of his very first lectures, possibly the first, was given at the home of someone named Warren Lloyd and the fascinating family, the Lloyds that had a big influence on Manly Hall. And they were mentors often to to budding young talent. So for example, um, Carolyn Lloyd and her daughter, Alma Estelle had met the Chandlers, mother Chandler and her son Raymond on a, boat coming back from England and found out that they were going to be in Los Angeles and they were looking for somewhere to stay while they settled down. And so they were given free run at the Lloyd's house. And in fact, Warren got Raymond a job at the creamery where he worked. And Raymond worked his way up to vice president, but he drank himself out of the job by drinking on the job and became a famous writer of mysteries and suspense and about L.A. in particular, the noir writer that we all love. Manly Hall gave one of his very first lectures in that same house, possibly with the Chandlers there. And he, uh, Warren liked to have seances and Ouija board sessions after he had parties, but on this particular night, he featured Manley Hall. Now feeling more confident about his ability as a lecturer, He was invited to lecture for the Church of the People at Trinity Auditorium in downtown LA. And he goes there, lectures on reincarnation, wows everybody by doing what he did all his life, giving a 90 minute lecture with no notes whatsoever, with no mistakes and plenty of dates and names and incredible uh, sharing of facts. They were so impressed that they invited him to be the minister of the Church of the People. Meantime, the Lloyds were were very interested in supporting him, and so they gave him resources, the resources by which he was able to travel to Europe and to acquire the incredible collection of manuscripts and books that he he had in the library. The, the cream of it is now at the Getty, and he found that in Europe between the two world wars that these materials were very cheap. Because people were cynical and although there were people that believed this was the end of all wars, all such mysticism and alchemy and all of these arcane matters seemed to them the stuff of an ancient world that had been discredited by the First World War. So he acquired treasures upon treasures saying he'd once told me that he found things for example in piles like when he asked for alchemical manuscripts at one store he was led to a back room where it was he was piled up alongside newspapers like it was garbage and there were priceless manuscripts in there that he was able to acquire so when he brought those home he got together with the Church of the People to create this amazing book that is a book that has sold over a million copies and never been out of print. We know it as the secret teachings of all ages. And the original first edition was this splendid publication in a big box and with beautiful color plates, hugely oversized tome. And people wonder how did such a young man create a book with so much information in it? How could he possibly synthesize or even access all of that? But it was really the natural result of of what was going on in his life. He had all these materials. He told me that he was very struck by the idea that all of this could have been lost during the World Wars and during other wars that were bound to occur. And so even beyond that, people had no idea what was in these manuscripts. He wanted to create a book that would gather all of these almost forgotten treasures That could be so easily lost and so they would be preserved and and they could be shared with anybody who had interest in them and so the church of the people helped him out he told me about how there was a house and they would all gather and There would be people in different rooms and there was paperwork all over the floors and copies of things and they were saying we should do this here and put this illustration with this part and he was directing and supervising it was his vision but he had a whole community helping him put this together and he continued to be influenced by the lloyds who uh, caroline was a sculptor who had studied under one of rodin's studio assistants uh her daughter alma estelle had an apartment in Paris where she hung out with people like Man Ray and Hemingway. And so Mr. Hall at that time, he studied, I think with Caroline, how to sculpt. And he did this bust of Madame Blavatsky, did a, a bust that was a self-portrait of himself. And eventually Alma and her mother gave him a bequest of royalties that lasted most of his life. They were oil heiresses. And so they took a small percentage of, of the cash flow that was coming to them and they directed it to him. And this enabled him to get a good start. Now, that wasn't how he got by. He made very wise investments in, in all sorts of ways. He had very good people who helped him uh, keep the Philosophical Research Society going. He invented this thing called the Philosophical Research Society, which was an auditorium. Where he would lecture every Sunday at 11 a.m. for one dollar for decades, and it had a beautiful library with all this wood paneling—I mean, just gorgeous—that housed over fifty thousand volumes of books on the esoteric, and it had a really adorable little gift shop with all kinds of little treasures in it. Um, his own office, which was also filled with treasures, and then an upstairs with offices for the staff, a small shipping room next to the. Uh, the gift shop and a small lecture room upstairs for lecturing on weeknights about things that were more obscure that might might not draw the kind of audience that the big auditorium would. And this was in a Mayan Egyptian kind of style and in, in a sort of pinkish amber color. And there was uh, just a general atmosphere around the place of uplift and of refinement and of love of education. And and so he became very popular. Uh, he was a star at one time. In 1942, after Pearl Harbor, he lectured on America's secret destiny at Carnegie Hall and he set attendance records. He would lecture in Chicago and, and he told a story about how this wonderful expensive coat that he had was stolen and that al capone made sure that he got it back he was that famous and that respected and that popular and when he opened up the philosophical research society he became a a center of culture in los angeles he was friends with mayors he he was said to be an influence on the american exceptionalism of ronald reagan when ronald reagan was a governor Uh, He wasn't a particularly political guy, uh, but I think that he was trying to inspire people to believe that America had a special destiny and to live up to that. When I got there, which was in the 80s, he was in his 80s, and most of the people around him were in their 70s and 80s. At that point, the place was run almost entirely by women. Uh, It turned out it was really due to the fact that their husbands had passed away one after the other they had been the ones who ran the place and so the wives took over and it was an amazing community so generous uh, with information and resources and so encouraging to people like myself who came in there knowing next to nothing and yet at the time that i knew him it was very humble and that's probably a big reason why i was able to become friends with him because earlier in his life he was uh, quite an illustrious character surrounded by Uh, All sorts of people and everybody wanted to see him all the time. When I saw him, the place was uh, relatively quiet and had a mostly older uh, following and it was beautiful. It was really a, a wonderful place to be. He hasn't really received the respect that one would think he deserves having written so many books and given thousands of lectures and written so many journal articles and had such huge influence, really. There's almost no area of esoteric studies where you will not encounter something that he's written if you're researching. And of course, his Secret Teachings book in particular has been a book that many people, including myself, began their journey uh, by reading and having published this book. And because people know that I knew him, I get to hear a lot of really cool stories about that, about people who found that book and how it changed their life. I believe today he's starting to get more respect, even in academia, and I'm really glad to see that because although a lot of his scholarship was dated, uh, he was dependent on the people that he was drawing from, and there's been so much incredible research since the days that he wrote most of his books that have changed many of the facts. He nevertheless suffused all his work with a great wisdom that that seems to, to feed the ho- the human soul like no other and he was capable of great scholarship he did things for example like he was one of the very first people as far as i know to ever write about Shingon buddhism in america in english
1: i gather that he also was a practitioner of buddhism
0: it's interesting i I actually asked him about practices and at that time in his life he was very fascinated by by various asian traditions Taoism. And, and definitely by various forms of Buddhism, especially by Shingon Buddhism. And so, but as far as practice, he told me that he did not really need to, for example, sit down and meditate twice a day as many people were doing. That, that for him, that his work and his, his day-to-day living was a meditation. And that he was doing something similar to the Zen walking meditation, trying to create a state where he was constantly uh, connected meditatively. And he also taught me the, uh, the Pythagorean recollection, where at the end of the day, you look back over the day backwards and, and you see where you could have done better. And he really recommended that as an excellent way to uh, improve your life. So he really gathered practices where he found them. But he was very fascinated at that point with Buddhism, and he was trying to accomplish a dream of his, which I helped him work on, which was he wanted a companion volume for the secret teachings that would do for the East what the secret teachings had done for the West. And he gathered these materials. We had a big folder. He would give me stuff when he found it. I would go looking for things. But even then, there was already just beginning a, a this huge wave of Buddhist studies. And the vision was opening, the horizons were opening. We had we had companies like Shambhala and uh, Snow Lion Publishing work by Tibetans about Tibetan Buddhism so we weren't getting it second hand anymore and I do believe that he realized at a certain point that he was too old to keep up with all this new research and that the book wasn't really something he could achieve. Eventually it turned into his book about uh, symbols of meditation, one of his last books, a really beautiful v- little volume but it did not achieve his goal unfortunately.
1: Now, I have uh, been in his office many times at the PRS. I was involved there for maybe 20 years after your period uh, there and and I know there he kept a Buddhist shrine right in the office.
0: He did, yes, a Japanese one and I did see him light incense on it at, at times. I don't think that this was, I mean, he was he was a kind of person that 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 would be giving respect to to all and and any form of of deity and tradition and and he I think that this was one that he found comfort in and and he there was much about Buddhism that appealed to him and there was certainly a, a peacefulness and a tranquility in that office which was filled with Asian art and one of the things that was so delightful in the uh, first year that that I was there was that my then girlfriend, uh, who became my wife, Tamara, he would allow her to walk around his office like a like a grandkid and point at things on the altar and say, what's this? What's that? What's what's this? And he would tell her stories about what they meant and where he got them. And I got to be a part of that. And it was it was just tremendous to hear all the history personal and uh, world history behind the the objects in his office. And his office was really like a temple, and it felt like one.
1: I gather he was also a 33rd degree Mason.
0: He was, and he was actually initiated into Masonry, I believe in the 1950s, and I think in San Francisco. Uh, He, you know, he's, he's got an interesting history with Masonry. He somehow intuited and learned from his in- intense reading of, of Albert Pike and of Cagliostro and of manuscripts that he found is in the very early days, there was a lot of crossover between Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry. And, and so he he learned so much about it that as a young man, he wrote books about Masonry, such as The Lost Keys of Freemasonry, that were instant classics for Masons. But it put them into a peculiar position because he was not initiated. And he had had basically understood some of the deepest truths and written about them. Now, he understood that that by not being initiated, he could write about them. He had many masons who became attracted to him because of his deep knowledge of the craft, and they became his dear friends. And I believe that at a certain point in the 1950s, he decided that that he would uh, formalize his initiation and he certainly upheld many of the goals of freemasonry and at one point he actually encouraged me i actually have a letter that he wrote recommending me but there there were some aspects of freemasonry involving the separation of the genders and some other things that that disturbed me so i didn't actually do that but i cherished the letter and and what he had to say about masonry was was very positive that it was a fraternity of really good people He facilitated my uh, lecturing at at some uh, centers for Freemasonry in Los Angeles, and I found it fascinating to be there. Uh, It's been very strange uh, hearing about how he was supposedly a a Illuminati, and because he was a thirty-third degree Mason, that he must have been up to no good. And uh, all the Masons I had met were the sweetest, most uh, caring people, and and. I think they were having more than enough trouble just keeping everything organized and going, let alone trying to to run the world or something.
1: What I admire about Manley in particular is that in spite of his renown he refused to uh, set himself up as a guru as so many other metaphysical figures in in America have have done. He made a point I think of encouraging people who who wanted him to be their guru to to tell them to look within themselves or to look within nature.
0: Very much so he I was his screener for for some time, and so uh, people who want, wanted to approach him about being their guru or their teacher, he would tell me what to tell them. When he was he was telling them, "No, you can't meet with me." And sometimes people met with him and and surprised us by by asking him this, and then we got to hear his answers. And by we, I mean Tamara and I, because she was also his screener. And so he what he would say is is you don't need me nature and life are your teachers and he believed in the rational soul of the world he believed that that this this world is to teach us and that we can sort of have a dance with it if we if we let it lead and and we will learn a great deal if we do that and so he felt that that no one needed to have a a guru that they must follow and rules that they must follow that way each person had to walk uh, their own path and and find their own way through life and find their own sources of wisdom.
1: Well, I regard him as a very authentic metaphysical teacher. Uh, I know in the history of american metaphysics you'll you'll find many who rose to prominence but who lacked that authenticity.
0: very much so. And I think a really good example of that in the twentieth century. Uh, there's several good examples that can be found in the world of mediumship, which was, which roared into popularity again at that time. And so, uh, in the book, I write about a, a German tourist by the name of Willy Reichel. He was a magnetic healer using uh, the methods that Mesmer pioneered and was apparently quite successful. He had impressive testimonials, but the medical establishment and also the clergy were very against what he was doing and they persecuted him. He had the means to travel. So he traveled around the world. He went to all kinds of exotic places, trying to learn about local beliefs and trying to expand his own healing ability and his own knowledge of the esoteric. And one of those exotic places that he went was the United States of America. When he first got here, he went to New York. He had some sessions there with some well-known people. And he, he says that he wasn't very impressed. Now most likely you or I or any of your listeners would be impressed by what happened because he experienced a friend of his who had passed away speaking to him in German about detailed aspects of their lives together. But for Willie, that wasn't good enough. He, he was looking for really dramatic evidence. And he was devoted to the idea that, that when he found it, he would try to introduce scientists so that something could be proven. Because he pointed out that most Of the people that he ran into who were mediums or fortune tellers of any kind were frauds and many of them were really just ignorant people but every once in a while he found somebody who said and did things that were just completely inexplicable and he was looking for those examples all over the world he moved to los angeles like so many others he was drawn here uh, who have interest in metaphysics and he left beautiful descriptions of of Los Angeles in the very early days when, uh, for instance, Hollywood was a colony of French people. And uh, it was a, just a, a much different kind of environment. They used to sleep out on the porch, he said. No one even had locks. And he he loved it at first, but then the sunshine bored him like so many transplants here. He went up to San Francisco where he met the amazing Mr. Miller. Miller was a materialization medium and also an apportment medium. And he had a little ad in the local paper in San Francisco that said for 50 cents, you could come to one of his sessions and you could speak to any relatives or friends who had passed on. He ran an a, a import business of Oriental, as they called it then, furniture and, and art. And in his spare time, he did this mediumship work. So Willie went to a session and was extremely impressed. He was able to see a friend of his who had passed away begin as a small little blue flame that over a minute and a half or two minutes grew into a, a figure that exactly resembled his friend wearing a white robe and who talked to him, not only in German, but in the same dialect, obscure dialect of where they grew up and knew incredible details about their lives and the lives of their friends and family. Well, Willie had a question for him. He said, how come you're wearing a white robe in Europe? Usually the spirits show up dressed in the uniforms or the, the clothes that they were buried in. And the spirit explained, well, that's harder to do. But if you come back tomorrow, I'll do that for you. So Willie came back, and sure enough, the spirit manifested again. And this time, it was wearing the correct outfit for how Willie had seen him in the coffin prior to the burial. And I believe it was. this was also an obscure uniform of, of some office that this person had held. And so meanwhile, while this is happening, there are other people in the room receiving the same kind of visitations of these these full-blown spirits talking to them many different languages and miller is talking to people he's chatting he's he's not even (laughs) seemingly involved so this really impressed willie who came back multiple times and he also experienced portment, so a watch that he had lost months before he had met miller was suddenly given to him at the seance by a spirit, even the medium himself was apported from his cabinet on in the on the floor of the the first floor room into a second floor room directly above with a locked door and He claimed to have caused great pain for him in his chest and and he was very weak after the experience but Willie had, and others had examined every aspect of the place. There were no trapdoors. There was no way of explaining it, they thought, except a portment. With this kind of impressive evidence, Willie approached scientists in Europe trying to set up a, a visit either way to San Francisco or for Mr. Miller to go to Europe. And eventually there was a, a trip to Europe by Mr. Miller and in some places he was very impressive. He was tied down in one place, his hands were tied up, his legs tied, his he was gagged, he was blindfolded and he still produced manifestations in a room that he had never been in before and wearing clothes that he he had he had never worn before and impressed the people who had uh, were there, scientists who were there to see if this was legitimate. But He got caught repeatedly after that in ridiculous acts of fraud. For example, he said that he could produce the thumbprint of a famous person who had passed. And instead, it turned out the print that he produced was the print of his big toe. And we're left to wonder... I mean, how stupid, how did he think that this would, people had a copy of the print, they were going to compare it. He wept and said that that the spirits had tricked him, that he had not used his big toe and he didn't understand what had happened. But then he got caught again and he got caught again. This is a good example of how there's something inexplicable is happening. There is some sort of talent that this person has, that that these things are happening around them. And they begin to become well-known and and to to make money and to have importance. And then they feel insecure. Their power maybe starts to slip away from them. And they begin to to invent these fake approaches. This was very common in the world of mediumship, which was already rife with a terrible amount of fraud. Because, for example, in one town, the local mediums had hooked up with the stockbrokers and the mediums would push the stocks that the stockbrokers wanted to sell and the stockbrokers paid off the police so that there wouldn't be any problem. And a whole bunch of money was made. There were examples of these notebooks that were found, that were passed around by mediums that contained the histories of clients who were particularly gullible and included obituaries and all kinds of things and a book was published in the 1960s called the psychic mafia that revealed all this and the poor fellow who wrote it who was a medium who was a fraud but who said that he believed that there were people who were legit and he was just trying to warn people to stay away from from it uh, unless you yourself were practicing it because otherwise you were probably going to run into a fraud he wound up getting shot at the first time and then shot and wounded because he was taking away the livelihood of people and he was impacting a very uh, lucrative area of crime for organized crime. So the same kind of thing happens among metaphysical teachers. We, we have examples of uh, all sorts of uh, people who uh, try to present themselves as, as above all that and, and I like to use the contrast. So one of Manly Hall's friends was Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti was somebody who had been chosen by theosophy as a world messiah. He got the ultimate setup. And he was educated, he was this very uh, attractive young man, very eloquent. And when he reached maturity, he walked away from it. He said, I am not the world messiah, I don't wish to be part of any of this. And he became a teacher and an author and mostly around Ojai, California. And he became a good friend of Manly Halls when they were both young. And they were both in a peculiar position because they were idolized as gurus. Even though Krishnamurti walked away, it just made him more of, of, of an idol to many people. And when he tried to lecture to people, he was always telling them that they had to learn understanding, go inward, and that they couldn't rely on gurus, and yet people would become slavishly devoted to him as if he were a guru anyway. And he and Mr. Hall would talk about things like that, and uh, Mr. Hall talked about how he, he had his really nice car, and he'd go up to Ohio, and uh, Krishnamurti would be waiting for him, where the road met the highway, and he would hop up on Mr. Hall's sideboard outside the car, and Mr. Hall would race down this dirt road to the Theosophical Compound, and they would scare all the, the Theosophical matrons who were afraid that these two geniuses might get harmed, you know, because of their wild antics. And and they also talked about baseball, he said, and girls, and uh, but they talked about how to present the teachings and and nuances of it. And I sure wish that somebody had recorded those. Must have been amazing conversations. But they stand apart, in my opinion. And then you get examples of, if we're talking about the 20th century, we really need to talk about the other side of it, the the, the fascist side of American uh, religion and of American esotericism. And there has been fascism in esotericism for a very long time. And we always think somehow uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was the idea that if you were into esoterica, you were probably a liberal. And it, it was the idea that if you got into this stuff, it opened your soul and it opened your heart and it opened your mind. And there's no way you could possibly support something like fascism. But that's not at all true. In fact, esotericism has amplified fascism at times and you have examples like Julius Evola who's still very popular and influential who was certainly a very well-read scholar on the subject and author but he was also a great admirer of the Waffen SS uh, and Italian fascism and in America there was some very powerful fascist movements in the 1930s so what was happening really was that in the wake of the Russian Revolution, there was a lot of fear that, that the working classes all over the world might rise because of the frustrations of, of their position. And some people thought that fascism was a good way to prevent that. Obviously, that was the idea in Germany. And Hitler was being carefully watched as an example, potentially. There was a, an organization, the most popular of all those organizations was something called the Silver Legion. And the Silver Legion were also known as the Silver Shirts, because they used to wear these kind of shiny blue-gray shirts that were modeled after Nazi tunics. And the person who founded the Silver Legion was a fellow by the name of William Pelly. He'd been a screenwriter in Hollywood. And he had a house in Sierra Madre, in the foothills in Pasadena. And he had an experience there where God and Jesus came to him. And they told him to save America. And they told him that his example would be none other than the Fuhrer. And that he should be the Fuhrer of America. Well, he thought it was a great idea. And he accepted the mission. And off he went and he founded an organization that at its height had about 15,000 members and he wrote books about esoterica, but also was very open about his politics and was interviewed in a newspaper where he said that he agreed with Hitler, that the communists, the Catholics and the Jews were the agents of evil but that he would do something about the Jewish problem, but he wouldn't do it the way that Hitler was. I mean, he was that open. He ran for president, got almost very few votes. But as the war began to pick up, he got into a lot of trouble because he was still involved with the Germans and he was he was propagandizing on behalf of the Nazis in America. And as America entered the war, he found himself on the wrong end of uh, treason charges, and has the uh, dubious distinction of being one of the few people that that I found uh, in American metaphysics that wound up on a wanted poster. He eventually, after he he did uh, suffer various uh, punishments for what he had done, that that really wiped out the organization. But eventually, he he launched something completely different. What was based on UFOs and aliens, that was called the Soulcraft teachings. And he published these soulcraft books that answered any question you could imagine about life in the afterlife. As things like, why is it that spirits don't want incarnates to know that they're spirits, that they are immortal? Uh, and, and he had a smaller but, but popular following. So, William Pelly, what was really going on there? A lot of political ambition to be sure. And where, where did that end and the spirituality began, begin? We're not exactly sure. His influence continued through a fellow by the name of Ballard. And Ballard was way more successful. He and his wife Edna had studied theosophy, yoga. They had studied under swamis that came by, uh, traveling through America. They had looked into Rama Sharaka's teachings. That's uh, William Atkinson of Chicago, who wrote under all these pseudonyms. And they really liked where Pelly was coming from. And Ballard owned a silver shirt. Edna thought that uh, Pelly was great and and did everything she could to help get his ideas out there. One day, Ballard was hiking on Mount Shasta, and he was approached by this, this kind of electric Blond young man whose presence was just charged with energy and this young man offered him an elixir and this elixir uh affected uh ballard strongly and th- it was then that this young man revealed that he was actually saint germain and that he had, had come there in his in this manifested body in order to tell ballard that Ballard was chosen to be Saint Germain's representative on earth and that Ballard's mission was to save America once again and that Ballard should become president once again and that Ballard would then have ascended masters in the, in the Oval Office running the country that they had essentially Uh, inspired and and been protecting ever since it it was conceived and so ballard started a movement that became known as the i am activity and they were super popular one million people at one point uh, were involved in the i am movement Mm -hmm. and the i am movement was involving some somewhat strange practices. I mean, one that that I remember Manly Hall telling me about was that they had this special chair and you had to pay a significant sum of money to sit in this chair and get charged up by this this spiritual energy. And there was uh, stories that that they would uh, have to, every morning they would have to decree, like I decree that I shall be free of poverty. I decree that I shall be uh, healthy. And if you got sick or you were poor anyway, it was because you weren't decreeing with enough belief and faith. But they also had a kind of banishment thing that they did, which was called blasting, where they used violet uh, flames, violet lightning, and they said, blast, 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 when they were confronted with something that they thought was uh, evil. And all of this goes back to to Nazi Germany, ultimately, and we should discuss for a moment uh, why that's the case and why it's so attractive to esoterics, because the thing is that Nazi Germany was very into a lot of things that, that esoterics are into. So, for example, on the side of nature and respect for nature, Eric From said of hitler that hitler had no problem dominating human beings but he had great respect for nature and believed that nature should not be dominated it should be preserved and under the nazi regime in germany they would celebrate the great harvest festivals and the spring festivals and they they became these big celebrations of of nature uh they they were into uh vegetarianism and they were into biodynamic gardening the uh, Rudolf Steiner technique. And there was even a biodynamic garden in Auschwitz, of all places. They were interested in alternative forms of healing. They were against vaccines. And even though they made astrology illegal, it wasn't because they didn't believe in it. It's because they believed that it should only be available to the elite. And Himmler had his own astrologer, and there, there were some powerful astrologers. Uh, amongst the the Nazi leadership, even in the early days, there was a a mystic uh, seance leading psychic um, who did these sessions for Nazi leadership, and there's even photos of this. And he was somebody that supposedly predicted the Reichstag burning and or gave them the idea, as some have claimed. He would very much encourage Hitler and, and Hitler had people reading bumps on his head and reading his hands, his palms, and telling him that he was destined to be this great leader. Um, there was an effort made by Himmler to, uh, to get the SS to study the Bhagavad Gita and the runes and to practice yoga. And a mission was sent to the Dalai Lama in the hope of finding this legendary Aryan race that was blonde and blue-eyed. The Nazis were getting some of this stuff from Blavatsky, who, in her writings about Aryan heritage and history, appealed to the Germans in ways that I'm sure that she never intended. But they found uh, ideas there, like the idea of this this hidden, perfect Aryan race in the Himalayas, very interesting. There was, m- maybe most most incredible, There was an Institute for Occult Warfare founded in 1939, where the most the the leading astrologers and dowsers and occultists were all gathered together in this place to work on the occult side of assuring victory for the Reich. And and interestingly, there was in England a counter effort led by Dion Fortune and, and Alice Crowley was involved trying to use magic and other means to fight these, these uh, occultists uh, who were uh, using, uh, for instance, uh, dowsing with pendulums to find out allied troop movements or to locate submarines. And we actually have um, a comment from Himmler's astrologer about the Institute for uh, Occult Warfare. After the war, he said that he felt like he'd been trapped in a madhouse. <laughs>
1: Let me ask you a question, Ronnie, about St. Germain. Did, he, did the figure of St. Germain have particular meaning for the uh, Nazis or the fascists?
0: Well, St. Germain, um, he, it really seems wound up more with, with the Ameri- America really adopted St. Germain. And it's very interesting. It go way, going way back, by the way, because St. Germain in Europe has a lot to do with Freemasonry. And there were rumors of this man who, who lived this extraordinary amount of time and and that he could make gold and such. And people who met him, he would say mysterious things that, that made them think that he'd been around all the way going back to ancient Rome. And we don't really know what he was up to there. You know, People have decided he was an initiate, but this could have all been some sort of... Uh, Posture that he was taking that that helped him achieve his goals in life, and one of his goals was to help to forward Freemasonry. And in America, he takes on a life of his own. He he just they ran with the Saint Germain thing, and so for example, Manly Hall wrote about this incident that's dear to the hearts of of many. Uh, that apparently the founding fathers were getting ready to sign the declaration, but they were afraid because they were declaring war on the biggest, strongest empire in the world. And the stranger appeared in peculiar clothes, and he delivered this incredible speech. And And who was he? Well, in some occult circles, it was an angel. In some occult circles, it was the Count St. Germain. And... Actually, this was a piece of fiction by a very popular American writer uh, who fell into complete uh, obscurity, uh, uh, LePard. and people like Manley Hall wrote about it. He told me that he didn't know that it was fiction because he was given it. Uh, by a Freemason who was given a piece of a, a paper on which the story was written down that was was rather old and they didn 't know that it was copied out of LePard's book of stories and and so these these took on a life of their own so Saint Germain, whom Ballard is representing on earth and I guess we should finish our story of ballard he he became very popular, very wealthy, and he he had these Gorgeous cars that were canary yellow built for him, and he rented uh, a whole suite of rooms at the best hotel in downtown L.A., and had a temple built, and there were temples in other cities, and quite a successful enterprise. He got sick, and he had told everybody that he would never get sick, and in fact, that he would have an unusually long life, and he was somebody who seemed to age somewhat prematurely, but no one noticed or, or they, they thought it was that wasn't part of it. And when he got ill, everybody expected him to, to get better any moment, but he suffered terribly for months, even had a surgery in his house, he had a beautiful mansion in Las Feliz, not far from the Philosophical Research Society, and he finally passed and uh Edna immediately convened everyone at the at the main temple and she told them that daddy our daddy as she referred to him would be back soon in his body of light as an ascended master and uh, and then she set about selling uh photos of him that she claimed had been charged by him uh from the other side and she did well for a while she even survived having some of the officers of the organization arrested for mail fraud. Um, But then when she passed, uh, the organization kind of fell apart and St. Germain then found a new home because in 1958, um, Elizabeth Clare Prophet started up her work with her husband, Mark, and they claimed that that Edna Ballard had visited them in a a session of channeling and had, had declared that Elizabeth was now going to be St. Germain's only representative on planet. The, The whole thing was the exclusivity for both the Ballards and for Elizabeth Clare Prophet was very important.
1: Well, I had an opportunity to meet Elizabeth Clare Prophet and interview her back in 1973 when I was uh, just starting my work in uh, radio and, and living at the Institute for the Study of Consciousness in Berkeley where she came to visit.
0: That must have been really cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what an interview yeah she's she created a very successful community she was on television and and uh she uh i've met many people who who came out of her community or or found her books about the violet flame a good place to start their metaphysical journeys but she did inherit some of the ballard stuff uh she didn't use violet lightning she used violet bombs mm-hmm. and and there were there were some similar activities going on there and she was also somebody who I think illustrates the way that the, the, the financial pressures and also the, the perhaps the, uh, the ego expansion of, of taking that guru position can affect teachers. So she, during the time of the new age, there was this thing called the harmonic convergence. And the harmonic convergence was everybody was going to get together around the world and meditate at the same time. And it was, it was very popular and considered a big deal. And she said it was evil. It was evil because it was taking attention away from her ministry, which was the only way to be saved. You could not be saved by the Catholics. You could not be saved by the Harmonic Convergence. You had to come to Elizabeth Clare prophet. So you see that kind of thing often happening in the history of metaphysics anywhere, but especially it seems in America where it's so interwound with commerce. Well she also
1: if I recall correctly predicted uh, that there was going to be a terrible nuclear war and her her people became survivalists trying to live in in the mountains of Idaho as I recall uh, separate from society.
0: Yes she she did make a prediction that the nuclear war was imminent between Russia and the United States and the irony is that she made that prediction right on the eve of Glasnost and of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So she she really missed that one. And uh, we have a long history of these kind of prophecies being made in America of uh, whether it's the UFOs coming down to take away the faithful or it's uh, the end of the world. That, and And also many revisions where a leader will say it's going to happen on this date. But it doesn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is we didn't prepare properly, or, or sometimes they'll say, well, it, you know, we got so much publicity that the ideas that needed to get out there got out there. So now the aliens aren't going to make uh, an actual appearance. And, uh, there's, uh, some wonderful stories about, um, I think about, uh, for instance, one woman who's who was teaching that the UFOs were coming down and a bunch of reporters came down because the, everybody loved these stories. They were serialized in newspapers, but there were also these psychologists who were there who didn't reveal that they were psychologists who were studying this phenomenon of why people would believe it again and again and again.
1: Yes, uh, Leon Festinger, the sociologist, wrote a very popular book about this episode called When Prophecy Fails. The one. Yeah, very popular sociological theory. And, uh, uh of course, it's a fascinating story because it, it shows the, uh, convergence of, uh, channeling. And UFO cults and parapsychology. In fact, one person involved with that organization was Andrea Puharich, a very well-known parapsychologist. Yeah, the discoverer of uh, Uri Geller, amongst other things. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So it's uh, it's now the other thing is though it's important to keep in mind. I believe that one thing that 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 I found in writing my book was. That even the frauds, I mean the outright frauds, sometimes had wisdom. Often yep. they, were, they were an amalgam of, of, of fraudulence and wisdom. And mm-hmm. then even the ones who were truly wise seemed to have sometimes stooped to moments of fraud here and there. So very rarely do you find people who, who have a spotless history in American metaphysical religion But that doesn't mean that they should be thrown out because I I was amazed at at how many of the people that I thought uh, really were reprehensible would say or do things that really had uh, an impact that was enlightening.
1: I know. Uh, in my early years, I uh, did field work at San Quentin Prison and met murderers and rapists. And in fact, uh, conducted group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists. And and I discovered that they too had moments of great clarity and wisdom and kindness as as, as well. So it has something to do, I suppose, ultimately with human nature.
0: Yes, it's, um, coincidentally, um, a book that I co-authored was published yesterday about the Orphic hymns. And, and in the Orpheus mythos, there is the idea that all human beings are partly made up of Titans and partly made up of, of Dionysus, of the divine. And so we, we have within us the very worst and we have within us the very best. And, it's a process of purification that are, that are lifetime after lifetime so that we can purge ourselves of the Titan and claim our divine heritage. And so the famous Orphic saying is, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven.
1: That's beautifully put, Ronnie. and uh, It highlights the fact that uh, you've come out of the closet, so to speak. I know you have three new books and uh, it will be my pleasure to interview you about each of them. I know today we've just scratched the surface on the uh, metaphysics of the United States in the 1900s. It's such a rich and, and varied tradition. I'm sure we'll have much more to talk about.
0: Oh, I hope so. I, I do want your your listeners to know that that there is so much more. There's th- this, the 1960s gave us the Renaissance in tarot, where tarot and and starting in like early 1960s, very hard to find a tarot deck in America, and now there are thousands of tarot decks and they're available very easily. There was a renaissance in astrology in the 1960s. And we see that today astrology is CNN is running articles about Mercury retrograde, and they're not joking around. And there was also a renaissance in in reincarnation studies and in books about and the belief in reincarnation. And then there's the whole psychedelic revolution that occurred uh, with Castaneda on the one hand with mescaline and peyote, and on the other hand, LSD and the experiments that began in New York with the CIA. And even those experiments, uh, Robert Masters was one of the people administering uh, LSD there in New York. And that's how he met his wife, Jean Houston. And they went on to be these amazing, uh, really inventors of the human potential movement. And Robert had an experience where he uh, encountered this ancient Egyptian goddess, Sekhmet. And he was so moved by this encounter that he wrote a book about it. And almost relaunched. I mean, he, no, he actually he did a, a whole Sekmet religion launched, uh, grew, outgrew his book quickly, and there's now priesthoods and and uh, there's a temple in Nevada, and you can buy almost anything segment related on eBay or Amazon, and so there's there is so much such a wealth of fascinating stories, uh, especially in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, Robert Masters and Gene Houston were friends and and mentors to me. So, I think that's a very important episode in American Metaphysics.
0: Very much so.
1: Well, Ronnie, I look forward to many conversations uh, with you in the future and for today, I want to thank you so much for being with me.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm honored, Jeff, really.
1: I'm honored as well. And for those of you who are listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is, Is There
0: Life After Death?